You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about Citizens, please visit citizensbhm.com. Well, we're in a special sermon series. It's an Advent sermon series. If you're unfamiliar with Advent, it just means arrival. We're reflecting on and celebrating the arrival of Jesus 2,000 years ago as a baby. We're thinking about the arrival of Jesus in our hearts. We're thinking about the arrival again of Jesus at his return one day as king. And that's why we have the art on the wall. I ask that you would take your time, take a look as we ask visual artists here at Citizens to reflect upon Mary in the different ages and stages of her life of what it was like to meet Jesus in the flesh, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, but also the Son of Mary. And as we think about that ours, we think about these things, Advent focuses on four major themes. It's hope, joy, peace, and love. And think about your faith like a single cord between you and God, and these themes like additional cords winding around it until it becomes a strong rope that you have experienced the peace of God. You've experienced the hope and love and joy of God. So suddenly you have something thick to hang on to that's more than fact, but an actual relationship with God. And so as we dive into that, today we look at love. But it brings a question to us of what is love? Because it's a confusing term in our culture, right? Our culture would say, love is God. But scripture would tell us, actually, God is love. And so here's the, I found a research uh, study. It's very academic. It's very scientific. They uh, asked some questions of some elementary age schoolgirls about what love is. I think it can teach us a lot. Look at what Camila has to say. Love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your French fries without making them give any of theirs. I know it's rainy out there, but head to Ferris after this, and you can test it out. See who really loves you. At least it's the way to my heart, a good French fry. Check out what Noel says. Love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt, and then he wears it every day. (laughs) Noel has a good head on her shoulders. One well-placed compliment from a woman can steer the life of a man. I got two more, and they get a little more serious. Check this out. Love is when my grandmother got arthritis, and she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. On a related note, we have Sophia with us here today. She will be preaching the rest of the sermon. (laughs) My gosh. And then Aaliyah, finally. You really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. People forget. Take a little time to feel the force of that. We all have a way of not believing people love us whether it's family, whether it's friends, or our invisible God. Most people in this room, you've heard some version of God loves you. But if you're like me, I struggle to believe that sometimes. 
And that's the beauty of our Jesus, that when you doubt, that when you grow weary, that when you're unsure if God loves you, you're invited to look directly at Jesus. Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrates his love to us in Jesus, that the cross is proof of God's love for us. 1 John uh, chapter 4, verse 8 tells us God is the source of all love. Think about that. All true love, all good love in the universe has its source in one being of God. That's what 1 John 4, 8 tells us. And then he goes further and says, and God is love. Just point blank. Now, God has more qualities than love for sure. But his love is a defining quality, a defining way that God describes himself in the Old Testament, that God's steadfast love is towards us. That to know God is to know his love for you. And before Jesus dies, before he dies, rises, sorry, this thing's on a, a seam here, so we're having a rocky ship. Before Jesus dies, rises, and ascends to heaven, he wants Mary, his own mother, to know the love of God that's both transformational, but it's also tangible. That when his body is gone, that the love of God is not gone at all. Look with me first in Luke 8. It says this, Then his mother and his brothers came to him, Jesus is about 31 right here. That makes his mom maybe 46, 47. Then his mother, Mary, and his brothers came to Jesus, but they could not reach Jesus because of the crowd. It's so crowded, they can't even get to the guy. Apparently, he's in some type of house, but once again, we have a no room at the inn situation, and Mary is on the outside, but Jesus is on the inside. It's so packed, they can't get in. And he was told, Hey man, your mom and your brothers, they're outside. They want to see you. They're desiring to see you, Jesus. But Jesus answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus radically redefines what family is in a sentence. He says, my family of origin is no longer the closest family to me, but rather everyone who follows God sincerely, potentially all these people who are crowding around him, potentially all these people who he doesn't know outside of today, if they hear the word of God and do it, they are now as close as any family member could ever be to Jesus. Which is good news for us that means anyone, you don't have to be Jewish, you don't have to be a blood relative of Jesus, Anyone can be a part of the family of God through faith in him. That this little boy, that Mary hears this, this was her baby. This is her promised miraculous baby, but it's still her baby. It's her little boy. She taught to dress, taught to eat, taught to read, taught to play. He's a man now, but suddenly he redefines family in a second. But instead of crushing Mary, she continues to follow. She learns something precious, precious for you and I. That by responding to God's love with obedience, that we are welcomed into Jesus' forever family. 
that's radical stuff then. That's radical stuff now. Now human families, they're defined by who your parents are, who your blood relatives are, who cares for you, who's, who legally adopts you, who's your guardian, who you live with. And Jesus is declaring that if you follow me, you belong to me first. Whether you have a great family or no family, you can be part of the family of God. It's not just for orphans and widows, but for everybody. That you can be part of a family that loves you always and forever. Not as servants or members of a religion only, but God's actually family. No credit check, you're pre-approved. You're pre-approved that you can be a part of God's family, that your creator wants you to come home. And God is building a beautiful, multicultural, multi-ethnic family from every generation across the globe. And you might ask, why the emphasis on obedience from Jesus? If it's such a welcoming family, why does he say you must listen to my words? Well, obedience is love, when it comes to God, John 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. To obey Jesus is to love him because God's words are an extension of himself. God and his words are tied together because God is absolutely perfect. He never misspeaks, he never mispromises. His words are absolute truth. When I speak, even when I'm preaching and doing my best, my words aren't perfect. I mispronounce every like 50th word, right? You can give an amen. It won't hurt my feelings. I am limited in knowledge. I am limited in power. I am sinful and wrong. I exaggerate. I do all sorts. of. I, I, my words don't always come true, but Jesus's always do. And that's a big difference. God and his words are so powerful that Genesis 1, he says he creates the universe by the word of his power. God is so closely tied to his words that in John 1, he calls Jesus the word. That God is the living, that Jesus is the living embodiment of everything God has ever said. That he's the living word. And so to obey Jesus is to love him because there's no reason to distrust him. There's no reason to doubt it. There's no reason to limit it. That We are to come to our creator, but we come as creatures ready to obey because he loved us first. Because he came to us. We didn't go to God. God came to us. And so that's why it's based on this obedience that brings us into this family. And imagine this for Mary. This is a moment where God's love becomes transformational. It's not just her son's fulfilling a thing, but suddenly her position to her son is being redefined. There's still still mother and son, but suddenly she belongs to the family of God first. It's real for her too. It's this transformation that maybe this crowd isn't going to be the problem, but they're her potential new family. Each person is now a potential son, daughter, brother, sister, father, or mother, grandfather, grandmother to you in faith. Doesn't that shift how you treat everyone? 
that God is saying they might end up closer to you than your actual mother. That every person you meet might actually be closer than any brother, closer than any spouse. That you actually have more in common with anyone who trusts Christ. Maybe they're from a, a language you don't speak, a country you don't know. But if they follow Christ and you follow Christ, you're actually united in Christ. You're actually spiritually drawing close to them, even if you can't communicate. It's a mind-blowing thought in a world that hurts for peace. Mary, in this moment, Jesus is telling her and telling us there's something more important than physical family in this life. And that's a core-shaking thing to say that there's something more important than our physical family. That to know God, to believe and trust in his words, brings you into the family of God himself. And to follow Jesus, thou means you have a new family. That it takes, that it means more than any other family tie in this world. And Jesus jumps into this very subject again, speaking on love and family to Mary, but it's from the cross this time. John 19, join me. Verse 26, it says, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that would be John, the youngest disciple, standing nearby, Jesus is hung high on the cross, stretched wide, looking down in the last moments of breath in his death. And he said, Jesus, to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about the disciple John. He's telling Mary, look, this is going to be your son now. This guy who we would call probably still a boy, maybe 14 or 15 years old. Mary, behold your son. And he doesn't stop there. And then Jesus said to the disciple, John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple, John, took her to his home. Mary's heartbroken as she sees her little boy grown up, but dying, dying on a cross. Maybe she understands some, but probably not all. Same with John. He's not dying for any of his crimes. He's not just dying because the world's unjust. He's dying for our sins. That Jesus' death on the cross is for all of us. He's dying because he loves us. But Jesus, at the height of his suffering, the very most painful part of his life, Jesus continues to obey God's words. He continues to be obedient to God's law. He continues to honor his mother to the very, very, very end. That's the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, it says, honor your mother and father. And Jesus, see, having this new family in Christ doesn't, doesn't erase our existing family relationships. It actually makes us fulfill our existing family relationships well and have a new family. And Jesus himself is honoring his mother. He's honoring her as a widow too. Joseph is long ago passed away. He's saying, I'm going to care for my mom as, G as her eldest son to the very last breath of my life. And I'm not going to die on this cross until I've passed responsibility on to care for Mary. When she's not in her 40s, but she's in her 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, however long she'll live. And interestingly enough, we have Jesus hung high, dying for the salvation of the world, and he's almost alone. It's just his mom. 
a couple female followers and one disciple. There were 12. Judas betrayed him. He took money to have him arrested. Peter, the leader, denied him three times. The only disciple who stuck around is John. And he might just be confused. He's just hanging with Mary. And Jesus doesn't find his half-brothers or sisters around, but instead entrusts his mother to his new family and John. He says, you take care of her. That today you gain a mother, and today Mary's going to lose a son and gain a son. We're promised in Matthew 19 that if you lose family, if you lose possessions, if you lose status, if you lose anything in following Jesus, that you will be paid back a hundredfold in heaven. What an amazing promise. But here, they don't have to wait to heaven. She's going to lose a son and gain a son in the same afternoon. That's the power of the gospel that creates new families. By receiving God's love, we are joined to one another as new families. I had the pleasure to go visit the ancient ruins, the city of Ephesus in uh, 2022, the summer. And I got to see that John took this dead seriously. Because when you go to the ancient city of Ephesus, the first church that's ever built in Ephesus with its own building, it's inscribed in the marble, Church of St. Mary. It was built in 300. And you might be like, well, why is the Church of St. Mary in, in Ephesus? What's that even mean? Well, this John would grow up. John would grow up and kind of end up maybe the most famous pastor of his age in a, in a time when being famous was not a good thing at all, that you would probably go to prison, which he did over and over he would become the longtime pastor of the church of Ephesus. It's over 900 miles away from Jerusalem. It's not close. But all historical evidence points to he took Mary with him and cared for her to the very end of his life. And that's why they named the first church building after her, to honor Jesus's mother had lived and been part of the church in Ephesus through all of its ups and downs until the very end of her days. That they took Jesus' commands from the cross as literal, as serious, and they fulfilled it. We were meant to live the Christian life together. That's how God's love becomes tangible as we serve an invisible God. Salvation is you and the Lord. But if salvation's between all of us and the Lord, then we also have a responsibility to one another. The Kepha's adoption is in some ways my adoption, your adoption. When you meet a Christian, you have a responsibility, a happy obligation to love and receive their love. Do we need boundaries and thoughtfulness? Of, of course. But would you start to see that you actually need your spiritual family far more than you think? Not just for what you can give, but what you can receive. Mary and John Price started out a lot of Mary giving to a teenage boy who just lost his master and, you know, is going to go through intense persecution all of his life. But at some point, that equation probably flipped by the end of her life. 
Do you have relationships like that? Are you willing to give your heart away, not just to get it broken, but to actually receive God's love for you? I remember when this first rocked me. I had come to Christ over a summer in college, and I, I fearfully was moving back into a frat house that did not love Jesus at all. And I, I, I was very worried. Would I go back to, to just kind of wild living? Would, it, would, I, would I just kind of fall into it and, and leave Jesus behind and fall away from him? And I remember I moved into my little room at, at this fraternity house, and my roommate moved in, and his name was Brad. And the first thing Brad said, he goes, hey, man, uh, I became a Christian this summer. I don't know what happened to you, but do you know Christ? I was like, well, funny enough, yes. <laughs> we sat, we prayed. And we had each other's back, and we followed Christ. Would I have continued to follow Christ about Brad? I have no idea. But I wouldn't put a lot of money on it. I needed him. I remember next time this rocked me that maybe this Christian brother might be closer than any other sibling I could have was, man, Eloise was a really fussy, difficult baby and child. And guess who hold my baby the most outside of Elena? It's Charlie Yambas. 19, 20-year-old Charlie was the person who Eloise loved and would quiet down for. As we led CGs in cramped apartments throughout Louisville, I would look over and see Charlie. Charlie, who was at this point unmarried, a <laughs> uh, bachelor uh, in college, was suddenly the baby soother and Uncle Charlie. I didn't even know I needed an Uncle Charlie past a, a great friend, but suddenly he was part of my family. I've seen that over and over here at Citizens and in my life that I need more than just my immediate family. I need the family Jesus is bringing into my life and that I can pour out as a fellow family member. Scripture gives us a final mention of Mary in Acts 1.14. It's a passing reference, but it's a telling reference. Verse 14, Acts 1. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Jesus had died, as Scripture foretold. Jesus had risen for the dead three days later, as Scripture had foretold. Jesus had lived for 40 days among them, and they were amazed. They were filled with confidence and joy and, and power that the, the, the man was dead, and that he's not, then he must be God. He appeared to 500. He explained the scriptures. But after 40 days, he ascended to heaven. And it says in Matthew 28, some of them still doubted, some of them still worried, but Jesus told them to go and pray and wait until I send my Holy Spirit. And we see here his disciples are waiting and praying, but not just the disciples, the female followers of Jesus and Mary, his mom and her brother and her other children, the brothers of Christ, and likely his sisters too. And we see this moment when things got hard and Mary was without her son again and the disciples were without her leader. What happened? They didn't split up. Instead, they says they have one accord, one purpose in prayer together, that all these people suddenly by believing and experiencing God's love were made into a church. 
that suddenly in the absence of Jesus, they didn't grow weaker, but instead God was sending his spirit to create a new people of not just a couple familial new relationships, not just a couple relationships of Mary to John and John to Mary, but suddenly he had brought a whole people together for one purpose to say, we follow Jesus and we're gonna live the rest of our life out in this way. The tangible expression of God's love to you is the church. And honestly, not even the church universal so much as the church local. This is a local church. Jerusalem will become a local church. When oppression and and disaster comes and persecution, the church will start to spread and the missions will spread, but they'll end up in more local churches. All the letters of the New Testaments are written to local pastors and local churches. That is how God organizes his people for a tangible expression of God's love. And the world would say, look, Mary's a widow. Look, Mary lost her son. She was anything. But, and they'd say, look what happened. But the truth is, Mary was anything but alone. She wasn't running low on love. Her life was filled and filled with the family of God. As the family of God, we have a precious power together to worship the same God. And when it goes wrong, boy, can it hurt deep. I know your story is enough, and I've listened to know that many carry wounds and hurts from the church. But can I suggest something? That if you have church hurts and real wounds from things that happen that are very real, Might God use the very same church as a family to heal those wounds? May God use that precious, powerful thing to begin a healing process that we don't live from woundedness, but we could live from wisdom and we could find deep healing for our souls. What if you refuse to let your hurts define you? but rather the story of God's healing in your life. This year I went to a wedding, um, and it was, a, it was a great young Christian couple. And they were getting married, tons of joy. Crowd is mostly Christians. But it became apparent as the bride was coming down the aisle that her family had refused to attend. But instead of walking down the aisle alone, she had an older gentleman with her who wasn't her father. When the pastor asked who gives this woman to marry this man, the man who was a member at her church simply said, her family in Christ, give this woman to marry this man. And as it dawned on people, the wild dedication and commitment of God's church to one another, there wasn't a a dry eye left. That what could have been an infinitely wounding moment was a beautiful healing one too. God lays out in scripture what love is. There's a, there's a chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, dedicated to just describing love, both to highlight love's importance, but also to share what's expected of us 
when we love God and love our neighbors. I want to read the whole chapter with you. It's not long, and you've probably heard it at a wedding or two in your life. But tune in with me of what God says love actually is in a world of confusion. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. I'm a noisy instrument. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways, for now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. One day we'll see. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love, these abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. It's inspiring. It's lovely. But if you think about it too long, you start to realize how woefully short of that definition you and I fall. I'm sometimes irritable. I'm sometimes less than patient. I might be a little quick on the horn. The truth is God's love as a standard will crush you. There's no one, even the people you love the most, you don't love them like that. I know I don't, not all the time, not every year, not every day, not every rainy day. So what do you do with the gap between the love God expects and the love you actually live? People have a couple different responses. We can live out of despair of guilt. We feel guilty all the time that we don't love that well and you know, motivates, I'm just going to try harder tomorrow. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try harder. That's the gospel of guilt. You better try harder to earn God's love. Some people will just live in a denial. There's this fear of like never really spending much introspective time, just choosing not to think about how they fall short in their relationships. And it's kind of this running scared all the time. The refusal to stop and think about how do I love people? And is it like that? Others, we can try to redefine our love out of shame to make it bite-sized like the Pharisees. I want to define it so narrowly that I can love this person on my definition. But deep down, they know we're not coming close. 
But here's the truth. Jesus didn't come to burden us, but to set us free. Jesus came to forgive our shortcomings in love, to make us new, and to teach us to live with them. And the good news of the gospel is that he forgives these shortcomings, but God's love is not just to be a standard, but actually to be an experience that will transform you. So I want you to consider this as a small exercise. Remember, I said earlier in 1 John 4 that God is love, right? So what if we read that passage again, but I just plugged in Jesus instead of love? Let it wash over you, because this is actually who Jesus is. If you wonder, who is Jesus? This is it. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Verse 4. Or, wait a minute. (laughs) I had a different version with Jesus, but I'll do some editing. Verse 4, Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Jesus rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. Jesus never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect Jesus comes in his second arrival, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child and thought like a child. I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now, we see in the mirror dimly. We see Jesus dimly. But one day, face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these is Jesus. Love is a standard, but it's also an experience of Jesus Christ. The standard should crush us only to find the open arms of Jesus who died for you. Your power to keep loving your spouse, your children, your mother, your father, the people who irritate you, whoever they may be, is not you in your guilt doing better, but finding grace in Jesus to want to love like Jesus. Take some time this Advent to open 1 Corinthians 13. Plug Jesus in. and Let his love wash over you. Learn like Mary and John to be a new family under God.